Hello and welcome to First Time Dads. I am Richard Innes. And I'm Steve Mile. And this week we took First Time Dads on the road and met up with a knight of the realm, Sir Michael Morpurgo, the children's author, uh, perhaps best known for his book War Horse, which was turned into a stage play. Uh, we met up with him in a restaurant in Chelsea called Bluebird Restaurant. Indeed, in a very posh part of London, as you would expect for a, for a Night of the Realm. Sir Michael was absolutely delightful and lovely and very insightful. Uh, we talked to him about the challenges of being a grandparent, um, the things that maybe we don't always think about as parents, uh, uh, how fatherhood has changed, about um, the challenges of having an autistic grandson. Um, and uh, yes, he was, he was fantastic. So please be aware the sound quality might not be quite as um, outstanding as we're used to, we are stu- the fact we were out of the studio, but I'm sure you will enjoy it. Enjoy. So, Michael, thank you very much for coming on First Time Dads podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Um, now, you are a father, a husband, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather. That's right. right. Yeah, it's a massive uh, achievement, isn't it? How, how, <laughs> how, with the exception of your wife, how many of everything have you got? Oh, for goodness sake. Well, a, there is just the one wife, uh, <laughs> at the moment, of 56 years, um, quite a lot. Um, and I have three children, I think it's seven or eight grandchildren, no, seven grandchildren and one great-grandchild. Excellent. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah but if you start young, these things happen. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads me to my next question. Rich and I talk very much about modern far parenting and yes. being modern fathers as much as we can be and, and how we haven't got chat beforehand. Things must have changed dramatically. You see your children as parents now. Yep. Uh, how did you compare what it was like when you were first starting? Well, all I know is they're much better parents. I mean, the, the fact is they're more focused on the children. I mean, I'm talking about myself. My wife and my wife have always been very, very focused on the children. But I think certainly I was a young father in the 60s. And at the time, I think the notion of fatherhood still was that you went down to you did your work. Um, yes, you saw them before you went, uh, and when you came back, you would see them. You might, you might um, help put them to bed and play with them. But the work was the sort of the main thing. And the biggest regret I've got is that um, when I was a young father, I didn't spend enough time with them. There was no paternity leave. I mean, I went to see my wife in hospital. Uh, nursing home really rather than hospital and um, in both cases you, you felt like you were an intruder you know the, 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 the male of the species was not really welcome in these places we we're the ones who caused all the damage I think that's what they thought mm. with some reason um, but it, it, it wasn't comfortable you know and there were the you, know, you were allowed to sit by the bed for maybe three quarters of an hour and then you were off out and you didn't see them until the next day and she stayed in hospital for ten days no longer though you, people did stay in hospital that's what's really changed mm-hmm. as well the mothers were really well looked after then in terms of the length of time you could be in hospital um, so that was fine but then when they came home there was a business of yes I still had to go out to work I was teaching um, and therefore dealing with children all day and like most teachers at the end of the day I was quite tired and I'm not sure how much energy uh, or enthusiasm I had to give all I know is that it was um, it was not my best period in terms of um, I suppose getting on with children at school. It was my job, and I thought I did it pretty well. But I think I gave too much to that and didn't leave enough in reserve for the family. Probably mostly because I don't think it was 
yeah. what fathers did. I mean, I, 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 this is not an excuse. It's just mm. what how it was. I think for most fathers mm. in those days. Mm. Mm. Do you feel then that perhaps fathers today are under more pressure in the sense that we all still feel that obligation to be the breadwinner to provide for our families to go out and earn, but we also have to do all those things well, as well. The big difference is that the mother does it too. Yeah, I mean that's the, the, it is the the norm now for uh, the mother to be playing the same role before and after birth um, and that's what's also changed mm. I mean my wife did go out to work but much much later mm. after after the babes had had grown up then she went to be uh, a teacher training and she went to be a teacher but she had 10 years which she devoted of her life completely to child rearing and that is absolutely uh, I think and, and a lot of women spent their entire life doing that that's what that's what you did and then you took over and did the grandmother thing as well um, no, she was, I suppose, one of the reasonably early ones who really wanted always to go out to do a job, but she never let it affect how she focused on the children. So, yeah, it's changed so much but for, for the better. The balance is much, much better now between the two. Um, but I was, I was born too early. It's not my fault. It, 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 seem, it seems to me that maybe my children's generation perhaps will look to their parents or their fathers and say, well, okay, that's a... That's a modern-looking way of being a parent, and perhaps I might take my lead from my own parents in a way that previous generations didn't. I wonder if you had conversations with your children when they became parents. Because I, I guess you know, children look to their dads for lots of help and advice and, and guidance and, and, and on, on subjects. And I wonder if, when they became parents, they spoke to you about your parenting. Um, I think they would ask me, yeah, about my stepfather and and my mother. Um, and it's certainly true, this is passed on through the, the culture of, of, of parenting and I'm sure I picked up on some of the distance that after all my uh, parents were born just after the Edwardian era, they had this still in their head, they were, they were more humane than that and they wanted a closer contact. But nonetheless there was this feeling um, uh, that you know children did do what you told them to do and they uh, by and large, um, well, they went to bed early and, you know, they did what they were told mm. and they brushed their teeth and it was all fairly mm. simple and direct parent-controlling child. Mm. Well, what I learned during my fathering was that's sort of not how it was working. My wife didn't want it that way. I don't think I want it. It's not how I worked at school with children. And um, I think we did learn a lot. I think my generation did learn a lot about parenting, which is why, if we can give ourselves some credit, it's why you people have been freed up. I think. Yes. Well, it's not entirely you people have done the free, but what I most certainly did not do, and this is all part of it, I did not give my children any advice as to how to bring up their children. I think they might have run, how shall I say, and not thought that was appropriate. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, that's the point. Yes. Uh, but yes. what I have done is to observe them. Yeah. And watch how they how they do it, and I'm um, I'm very envious. I'm yes. very envious that they have made the time in their lives, and that they've made this a great priority in their lives uh, as fathers to to do this and to share the whole thing with a um, with their mothers. It's um yeah, I, I I do think in some ways I was born into a sort of stiffer yes age, and uh, they've unstiffed it, mm. you know, which is mm. great. It's mm. very interesting to hear you talk about. Um, 
that that perspective from from a grandparent's perspective because Steve and I on on the podcast obviously we you know the nature of the podcast is we talk about being young fathers but before before we came to speak to you we were discussing this the idea that actually what we haven't really addressed is the very important role grandparents play yeah. when you have your first child when you're first becoming a, um, a parent and I and I wonder you know if if you found because what what struck me with my own parents with with my in-laws is it's a very difficult balance to strike between being there and being supportive and being able to offer advice and help and all the rest of it and becoming too involved. And do you yeah. find as a grandparent that there's a sort of thin line to tread there? Um, yes, and it's, it's different with each child and each mm. child's spouse. You have to kind of um, gauge it very, very carefully. I mean, I think the, the guideline for me is you, you don't offer any advice unless it's asked for. Mm. And you most certainly don't try to impose what you think about the whole thing on their child. Their mm. child is their child, mm. you know, and uh, that's fine. And that's one of the joys, I have to say, the main joy of being grandparent, is you don't have that responsibility. Anyway. And you're <laughs> full, full of ice cream. And you're, at, you're there to spoil them, for goodness <laughs> sake. Look after yeah. them, spoil them, yeah. have fun with them, and then the parents take them away. And they back to their real world, when I'm going to school or whatever it is that they're doing, um, and you don't maybe see them for a few weeks, and then they come back again, and, and the whole thing happens again. And it's lovely. And, and in a way, that's how I would like it to have been in the first place, although it can't be, because mm. of course you've got the responsibility as well when, you're, when mm. they're your own children. No, it's a joy, and the real thing I think we all forget now is that we live longer. I, this, my generation lives 10 years longer yeah. than my grandparents did, which means that you have the opportunity to get to know your grandchildren. They have the opportunity to really get to know you. You're not just an old git because by and large you've been looked after better yeah. medically yeah. with a bit of luck. So you're reasonably, you hope, hale and hearty and, and that you can join in the, 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 the family mm. and the fun of it and sometimes the travel and all the rest of it. You can do all that. Um, and we're really lucky. Yeah. And, and I think you know, we take all these things for granted. We endlessly go, go on and on about how oh, things aren't as good as they should be in the health service, and of course they're not. And things aren't so good about looking after old people, which of course they're not. But we're just living longer. Mm. You know? the, and and the, the joy of the living longer is we, we tend to leave out of it. And for many of us who are not lonely in this life, you know, that's another issue altogether, but if you're not lonely in this life and you have got family and you have got grandchildren, that's the great bonus of your old age. Yeah. and your health those two things but yeah. you know, mm. nothing else really matters mm. do you think then on the basis of that the fact that you know, people are living longer that perhaps the grandparent role is all, grandparents now almost play a bigger role in, in a grandchild's life than perhaps they did a couple of generations ago I think it's a bigger role and of course a, a longer role mm. um, no, I think that's ab- absolutely true Oh, um, excuse me, we're going to because in comes Grandma now. <laughs> Sorry. Michael's Sorry. wife has just entered the room. So I now have to, now have to watch what I say. <laughs> R- really, really carefully. And, um, and repeat what I said before, how what a wonderful grandmother she is. <laughs> yes, yes, we, yes. Can, we can confirm he did say that. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, he did as say long that. as it's on, it's on, on record. record for the day. <laughs> no, actually, that is the truth of it. What's really interesting is I don't think she's changed a jot in terms of how she treats children mm. from when she brought up her own children. Um, I have. Mm. I think I've grown up with the age and with the softening, if you like, yeah. the, the gentling. Well, so I imagine if you were a teacher, uh, your relationship with pupils is there's going to be an element of, uh, uh, you know, 
you're telling them what to do, or you're, you're guiding them. There's a, a discipline yeah. element in there. Telling whereas, them sometimes. Yeah. 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 Whereas with your grandchildren, mm. you can relax because you don't you, have you, that. You can, discipline. but there's a but. But I will tell you a little story because I quite like stories. Um, I, well, my grandchildren are completely wonderful, but the eldest of them is also rather wonderful. Um, she came to stay with us. It was the first sort of experiment of having her to stay. I think she was about three. And she's a strong-willed young lady at the age of three. And she had really sweet parents, and the deal was when she was at home that she always slept in their bed. What she never understood about beds is that, generally speaking, your head is at the top and the feet is the other <laughs> way. She would sleep across you. Yes. <laughs> now, at That's the time, you we were working. I was working very hard at this project my wife started, Farms for City Children. I'd be up milking at 7 in the morning, and uh, I didn't particularly want to lose my night's sleep. And when she came to stay, I did say to Claire, it's really important that she goes to her own bed rather than kick me in the ear at 3 o'clock in the morning because I won't be any use in my work. And um, so we sort of made a little vow together that we would try to encourage her to stay in her bed. And this is what I mean by telling. You know, we, this is a girl who, by and large, was not told what to do. And if she was told, she'd pay no attention. Mm -hmm. you know. So anyway, her little bedroom was down the end of our cottage. And we said, OK, now, well, off you go to bed now. And we took her along the thing. We did a reading, the stories, and all the rest of it. Well, Claire did that. And um, that's, that's why you stay in your bed. That's why we see you in the morning. And I, okay, anyway. Two minutes later, bit of better, bit of better, bit of better, bit of better, into the bedroom. Um, I, can I come in your bed? No, we said not. We said not. We went to bed. You're not nice. I want my mummy. So we knew we were in for a bit of a struggle. Anyway, I promise you, 20, 30 times she went up and down that corridor. And every time there was a different attempt at persuading us that it was a really, really cruel thing we were doing, until we, of course, felt it was. Um, but in the end, I don't know what it was, maybe 11, 12 o'clock at night, it stopped. There was no more pitter better pitter better on the corridor. And we thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stick to your guns. We've done yeah. it, we've done it, we've done it, we've broken the back of it. Anyway, I woke up in the morning, opened our bedroom door, I'm lying outside our bedroom door. <laughs> so who won that battle? Well, right. yeah. So I mean, the, yeah, you, what you learn is that each one is a different character, mm. so you deal with them different. That's what you know as a teacher anyway. Mm. Um, and, but you also have to pick up on how the parents have treated them before mm. and kind of go along with, mm. the, uh, with that if you possibly can. I but, wanted to just come back <coughs> to the point you made, which I thought was really interesting. You, you mentioned that your wife is, as a grandmother, very similar to how she was as a mother, and that perhaps as a grandfather you're well, slightly let me, different. Well, let me get her to speak for herself. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, would you say it's about right? <laughs> well, there we are. I was right. Well, I'm wondering if, because actually it, that made me think of my own parents. And actually, I think, yeah, you know, my, my, my siblings and I often joke about when we see my father with his grandkids, we're like, where were you when we were little? You know, this kind of big, soft, yeah. lumbering buffoon no, kind no, of playing no, along and being silly. And so, well, we, you were a disciplinarian when we were kids, you know. So, um, whereas my mother, I think, probably is very similar. So, I wonder if there's something more generally in that. Yeah. In, in fathers having to in fathers that jump from being a father to a grandfather being very different and what you think about I, I, I think what you do as a father is the whole thing is experiment yeah. you really haven't a clue we know, no one teaches you how to do this stuff except maybe your dad before you and sometimes mm. the lessons weren't very mm. the ones that you really wanted to follow so no one's there to teach you you're doing it all by by instinct 
But by the time you get to be a grandfather, you can see where actually you went wrong, and I did go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and you know perfectly well that now these are their children. You better not mess I, it up. I rem- mm. my, my, both my parents had passed away. But I, my, my dad was a lot older than my mum. He was born in 1924. So his father was of the much older generation, yeah, yeah, Victorian. Uh, and he, my mum once said, You're, my dad became a father when he was 49. And I, I said, you know, the relationship I have with my dad. And she said, he once said, I don't want to have the same relationship with Steve that I have with my own father. Because his father, my dad was the youngest. And his father was a, a hard man yeah. and a disciplinarian. And he didn't have a close relationship. And I look at how my dad was with me. He was very tactile. We were, you know, yeah. give me a cuddle. And, and I'm like that with my son. And it's the generation, it changes. Mm over time, and I'm, I'm sure that is the case there. No, I think, you know, when you're describing um, very much, I think, how it, how it is, passing from one generation to another, dropping whatever had been the kind of culture of bringing up children in Victorian and Edwardian mm-hmm. times, mm-hmm. Um, which, it was destructive, mm-hmm. there's no question about that, to very, very many children, and I have to say to the parents mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. and part of destruction was the lack of connection between father and mother. Mothers, some honestly, were not in Victorian times were very often extraordinarily distant from their children. There were a lot of children who were brought up with not a cuddle in their life, mm. actually, mm. Um, which we sort of can't Im- imagine no. now. Um, but it, what we mustn't do, I think, and it's very easy to do this, I don't think you can point at generations before you well, yeah, and, and say, you know, you were terribly cruel, you were terribly that. That was just how it was then, as it is now. I mean, and I think young people might not think it now, but honestly, in 50 years' time, their children are going to be pointing there and say, do you realise, you know, how you messed up as parents? Mm-hmm. We say, all think say, we're right, you know, and it's sort of, um, you're not. Yeah, they'll say, what, what do you mean, Dad, you didn't take time off work when yeah. I was... Yeah. Why didn't you take, like, half a year off when I was born, yeah, well, you just You just fill with ambition. What's your problem? <laughs> just after money. I mean, there's all sorts of things. That exactly. I think that, you know, you just have to... You have to do your best. You have to recognise your mistakes as, as a father and then try and make it work later with the grandchildren. The lovely thing is having the opportunity to do it. And now we've got a great grandchild. Mm-hmm. My goodness, am I going to be good at that stuff. You know? <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you about was you're obviously an enormously successful author, um, writes for children, has a, 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 an amazing ability to communicate with children, hence the success of your books, and your communication with your grandchildren. Do you read to them? Do you talk? I mean, what's that, what's that interaction like? Well, I was reading to my great-grandchild only, only the other day. I was reading, what was I reading? Um, Jeremy Fisher. Jeremy Fisher, wasn't I? And she was, she was, she's two and a half. She finished every page with her. She, had a, she knew the sentence, at the end, the words at the end of every single page. It was lovely, really wonderful. And she clearly loved it. Um, but I, I think when I was a father, one of the things I was not good at particularly was reading to the children. My wife did that. Um, and maybe that was because she did and she was very good at it and they liked her doing it maybe it's because I came home tired for work and I'd been dealing with children all day and didn't want to read another story there's all sorts of maybes but I didn't do it nearly enough 
And considering I witter on now like mad how important it is that fathers speak to their children, I don't want anyone else to know this. <laughs> Which is why all this is in complete confidence. Course, yeah. Between us. Yes, yes. Between well, us and the microphone. No, yeah. I mean, the, re the thing is you do learn to say what I say now because I didn't do it then. Mm -hmm. And I think you do genuinely learn an awful lot about that. That is a wonderful moment, this reading mm. um, between the fathers and children and mothers and children is so, so important for, for yeah, for, of course, for growing of love and literature and stories that, mm. that sort of speaks for itself. It's also hugely important for the relationship because there's something about the story being this thread between the person you love most in the whole world and yourself mm. and it's being passed along this. And it's a physical thing. It's often. a physical thing. Your mum is there, you can smell her, you can touch her, you're sitting on a lap maybe. Mm. All these things are in the business of, of the telling of a mm. story. Mm. And the same if it's a father. Mm. It's a real moment of quiet and closeness. Mm. And actually in this world today, it's even, even more important. When there's so many things which can separate you from your parents now, different things. The, the, the things on you know, your phone or whatever well, it is. Which, which is time away from relationships like that. So the reading has become even more important in terms of, I think, the mental health of our children, which, as we know, is absolutely mm. critical. And I, I do think those, and at the time I didn't recognize this at all, but I mean, I'd go up to the room sometimes and Claire would be sitting there on the bed with one or two of them or whatever, reading, reading, reading. And you thought, well, that's what she's doing. And uh, she reads it very quietly and very well, and the children were very focused, some of them. And, um, you knew it was a magical moment, but you didn't realise how important it was to their well-being. I, you know? I think it's true, and it's, I think it's good for your well-being as uh, adult as Definitely. well. I mean, I notice I, I read probably three or four books every night to my son at bedtime. I do the three or four bedtime. books. Yeah, they well, must be rubbish if you're going through them that fast. They're, they're, they're <laughs> you're not reading any of mine, are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, skipping the pages. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm skipping the pages of my book. This podcast is not. <laughs> <laughs> you're skipping the pages, yeah, um, and. Uh, I've noticed, he's only two and a half, but he's noticed as he goes off on his own with a book during the day, yeah. sits there, looks at the pictures and knows the words that yeah. I've read, and yeah. says part of them, which is the beginning of him reading to himself. And already, even at two and a half, I, can, I sense that there's not, he's not gonna want to sit on my lap forever and be read books. So I am taking that greedily mm. as, as much as I can, because I know that it's not going not gonna to happen. No, you're right, too, because you've got to drink it in as well. Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's as important for us to have our well-being as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. No, it isn't as important, but it's pretty important. Mm -hmm. it, it, it also, uh, I think Steve's point is a really important one in that, that my mental health, so for instance, my son is 18 months old. He's just started at nursery. He's very, um, he's very agitated, shall we say, at the moment. It's a, bit, it's, a, it's a bit of a hard slog at home at the moment, but sometimes the thing that calms him down is to sit him on my lap with a book and there's that instant because he's now familiar with it he, yeah. we've done it enough times that he's familiar with it oh, okay we're going to get a book and you actually sometimes I actually hear him exhale as he sits on my lap but <sighs> and it's connection it's a really deep it's, connection if you put him in front of a video yeah it's not the same thing at all. No. They'll keep them busy, keep them quiet and stuff like that yeah but it will not be this this closeness which mm. which you which, which you have automatic, it is physical, mm. uh, and it's most certainly to do with intellect and mm. emotional connection mm. and all that. It's really important for for both sets of us, that's for sure. Certainly, um, I really loved reading that Beatrice Potter the other day, much more than she did. I mean, she was reading it to herself anyway, you know, no matter who's in that lap. In fact, it was really annoying because she got a lot of hair, and she kept leaning into the book to see where Jeremy Fisher was, was and I yes. couldn't read the text, and I kept having to get out of bed and push her head to one side so I could read the text. 
because I didn't know it as well as she did. What's it, that's an interesting point because I think this with Ben, as I say, Ben's only 18 months, so he's not necessarily following all the words. He's, he's certainly following the thread of the story. But there are times when I find myself, I'll be interested to get your perspective on this, I find myself wanting to read every word that's on every page because obviously we're still at quite basic books. Mm. And actually, he's busy pointing at things and saying, oh, there's a bird, and you know, or a car, or a bus, or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, yeah, really annoying, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's really annoying. They will not let you read the story. And then, and, that, and, then, read the story. and then they turn the page over yeah. before you finish. And, I, and then they want to turn back to yes. the one because they want that one again, please. So I kind of think, so I find myself, I don't know, just kind of being a slave to convention and wanting to go back. No, no, we haven't read every word on this page yet. And sometimes I have to say to myself, he doesn't care. He's just, he just wants to look oh, at all the pictures. But, but, then, but then on the same breath, sometimes when you're really tired and you're reading books and he knows that he's going to get four books and he picks one which is quite, you know, relatively <laughs> thick, I find myself skipping two pages at a time. And he doesn't realise that oh, that's criminal. That I mean, that is truly criminal. <laughs> <laughs> that he's he's got Can we organise it as he listens to this book? Absolutely. But we're, yeah. but we're, not, we're not talking about storybooks necessarily. He's got a book about the farm, which is doesn't. It's not a storybook. It's just got pictures of tractors. Yeah. This is the milking shed. This, there's not a, a narrative in it. This is just. So he doesn't know that he's missed the bit about the pigsty because you're just, right, we've got to get, we've got another book to get through. Um, no, but he might think if he does miss that, that you know the pigs what give the milk. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Yes an all right thing to do, to write a book uh, very inspired by the, the character of this boy and his situation and who he is. And my son's response was to say, anything you can do to get this subject uh, talked about and out there um, is a big help. Mm. Because I think um, as parents of autistic children, one thing they find is that they're very isolated in a world which still mm. has huge difficulty or prejudice. Mm. Um, mm against them. Anyway, um, yes, I mean, the first thing to say is that every one of my, I can't think of one of my grandchildren, or my children actually, who is not inspired either a story or a part of a story, mm -hmm. but usually I hide it under a cover of a different name, a different place or whatever, but they've been enormously inspirational, all of them all the way through. I think it's the first time um, I've known that if you're going to write this, it, it, it's obviously going to be Lawrence, that's his name. Mm -hmm. Um, and my son was happy with that. I even said, is it alright if I call him uh, Lawrence? And he said, well, Lorenzo is what we call him. Let's call him Lorenzo. So he's called Lorenzo in the book. Um, and then I suppose I drew, I sketched his character, this um, young, well, it's a, we know him as a child and we also know him as an adult. That's what's interesting about it. Right? You point out the book's called Flamingo. It's called Flamingo Boy, yes. Um, and. In brief, it's, it's the story of a, 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 a young student in this country who's just finished his A-levels and he, he goes off on the wonders and he's got a picture hanging in his room which he's had all his life. It's a Van Gogh picture of boats drawn up on a beach and he wants to go and find out where that beach is. So he sort of sets off, as you do, at the age of 18, 19, you know, rucksack on your back and off you go. He lives in Watford and he knows there's another world out there. So off he goes. 
and he gets sick and, and uh, at some part in a, in a marsh in the Camargue in the south of France he falls ill and he's taken into a home and there's a, a man there uh, in, in his forties um, who is autistic he doesn't know it the boy doesn't know it he just knows this man's a giant but a gentle giant who picks him up from this track where he's fallen and takes him home uh, and he and this woman called Kezia live in this house together Kezia has a backstory this boy's got a backstory and the story is recited really by Kezia to this young man as he's recovering from his illness and it's about um, this young boy um, who with his family uh, live um, on a farm out in the marshes deliberately because society doesn't particularly like yeah. these sort yeah. of so they live separate from the world keep their cattle and keep their white horses and they live in this land of flamingos mm. that's really what it is she on the other hand is Kezia is a um, a Roma girl mm. uh, living with mum and dad and they keep the carousel mm. which um, comes to this town uh, for two or three months every summer mm. and they meet because the boy comes to market and there's this carousel going and he's fascinated by the carousel particularly because they've got flamingos on going and, like a freezer this, on top. Is this something that's been inspired by something you observe with Lawrence? Is, is, are these sorts yes, it's that Lawrence really is very, very passionate. That's the word, he's passionate about whatever he's passionate about and it can be anything. He's passionate about flamingos. He sees these flamingos on top of the carousel and he's not remotely interested to start with them getting on it. He just wants to look at these carousel. I mean, you're Lawrence. Yes, absolutely. So I just reflect that. He, and then he, you know, he chops up and down. He doesn't have speech, but he has huge enthusiasm. And the relationship builds up between Kezia and this boy. Kezia really has some sort of instinct for how you get on with him. And what you do with Lawrence and what you do with Lorenzo in the book, what I learned, is that you have to keep him happy. You have to take away the stress from his life. He has to know where he is. He loves repetition and all these things that I've learned, I've learned, I've learned, which I didn't know before mm. at all. Mm. How uh, old was he when it was discovered that he was autistic? I think about two or three, something mm. like that. Um, maybe three or four until it was really sure how, I mean, he's severely autistic, mm. my, my, my grandson. And I wanted to particularly write a book that was not about an autistic child who's brilliantly clever. Mm. There's yes. actually quite a lot of that. You know, yeah. we, all, we all know Mozart might have been a bit autistic, and, and um, there have been very good books written mm. about, but very often they've got some genius thing. Mm. Well, some do have, because they're regular people, there are geniuses amongst mm. us, not many, and there aren't many amongst autistic people, but they do have very focused vision mm. on certain things, and relationships, the strength of relationships, repeating what you did yesterday, knowing knowing the world around you, mm. relying on its familiarity, on its sameness, mm. is critical to them. That's really what's important. But when they lose it, they lose it badly. Mm. And what's interesting is they've got no inhibitions. And so if Lawrence wants to do something, whether it's eating something um, or going out through the door, then that is what he's going mm. to do. And what one has to do, parents have to do, is to manage that mm. situation mm. so he doesn't get into any danger. Etc. But also so that he doesn't feel restrained or restricted or yes. whatever. It's a really hard balance. Did you find it difficult communicating with Lawrence compared to your experience of your other grandchildren? To start with, enormously difficult because um, he, he doesn't like looking at you, he doesn't like catching your eye. Uh, he does rely a lot on touch mm -hmm. and smell. Mm -hmm. Well, anyone who comes up to you and, and, and sort of 
touches you on the face and then smells you, you you know, it takes a bit of getting used to it. Yeah. But now you know that's exactly how he relates to people. He mm. does he does like the look of them, the smell of them, and he needs to be reassured mm. that you are the same as you were yesterday, etc., etc., etc. And so I, I, yeah, that took a long time. Also, he's very good at he, if, he, if he doesn't like something. Um, he, he, I remember at one particular point he didn't particularly want me there for whatever reason, and and he pushes you away. Mm. Well, most grandchildren, they've got a grandfather, they sort of think, well, we're boring, you go and do something else, <laughs> you know, but you want to go, go away. And in the story, what's really interesting is when the Germans come to the town, which is because of the, occupied, the occupation of the south of France, and they're all stood there, and all these troops come in, and the townspeople are just standing there looking at it, he's the one that goes up, and literally goes up to the soldiers, and pushes them one by one, as if they're toy soldiers, just pushes them away. And they all think it's a bit funny, but it's not funny at all. This is his way of saying, I really don't like you. Yeah, very literal. Yeah, but what's really interesting, it's exactly what everyone else in the town wanted to do, yes. but didn't dare do. They've got no inhibitions, they've got no inhibitions at all, either about joy or fear. I mean, you should see this boy, Lawrence, on a trampoline. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's brilliant, it's, brilliant, it's brilliant to get this level of insight, because actually, just in that five minutes you've, what you've described there, I, I feel like I've learned something about the realities of autism, because the bit that really, really struck me was when he talked about that portrayal of autistic characters within fiction. Mm. It's so often, it's almost like superheroes in a comic book, like with some kind yeah. of mysterious superpower, mm. which almost seems to trivialise and take away from the realities of what, what that existence actually means. But you know means. what I think the problem has been, is that autistic people are the same as we are. Yeah. They simply have exaggerations in certain yes. parts of their existence, um, which separates them mm. from the kind of society which we all sort of mm. get along mm. with. But we are all autistic. Mm. That's what comes out of my relationship with my grandson, is that every single one of us has got anxieties, uh, which we are not necessarily very good at dealing with. Um, we've got problems in terms of change. You know, change is something, I, mean, I don't like it sometimes. I wake up in a hotel room and I think, where, where am I, where am I? I don't like this. And it, he is simply an exaggeration of that. And I think that's what I've, I've learned, is that we are all, in some way or other, autistic. We, um, we've got another podcast coming up in, in, in a few weeks' time with a guy we spoke to who got a disabled daughter. And he said that there was an element of him and his wife thinking when she was born, we, we could, wish we could swap this for an alternative reality because, you know, why would you choose? But now, 10 years on, of course, they're much more comfortable with it. Well, did you have any anxiety as a grandparent when, when you had an autistic grandchild? I, had, I had anxiety. Yeah. But his father and his mother didn't. What's really interesting is they've embraced the whole uh, situation. They've got one boy who is not autistic yeah. and one boy who is, and they simply have embraced both in the mm. same way. Um, and that is their life now. I mean, they, someone has to be with that child. is not a child now, it's 50, uh, 24 hours a day. Mm. Um, so that's at least one of their lives occupied with yeah. that. And I never once heard them no. uh, grumble or even say, I'm tired. They simply do it and they do it with joy and, mm. and he is really the passion of the family. The family revolves around yeah. him in so many ways, yeah, yeah. both for the other brother and for them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, but the one thing I wanted to say, and I think it's really important, in, in my particular story, um, the boy grows old 
And one of the great problems we've got with autistic people is we tend to think of them as just being children. Yeah. The great inconvenience for society, not for families like mine, but the great inconvenience is that they do grow old and their problems maybe even multiply in terms of size and difficulty and they're no longer, you can't, you can't put them in a little box and say, oh, isn't that cute? Uh, um, no. They're now in their 50s and they've got serious problems about where do you live, what do you do, yeah. and their families, what's happened if mothers died or yeah, fathers died. There are issues like this which we in this country really don't think about at all and we put it on the back burner mm. all the time, all the time. Mm. Um, and you know, the government's been doing that now for a long time since mm. we've had this 10 years of the downturn. Yes. And it's these people who get hit hardest, the provision for these yeah. people. And these, there are many, many, many thousands of these people there. And they have lives that are just as important as ours. In know? which case then do you have anxiety or fear for Lawrence? Long yes, term, of course. You know, it sounds like your your um, son and his his part, his wife, are, will ha take measures to as best they can. Well, but you, who can you say can't, what the future? Well, you can't take all the measures in the world. I mean, the truth is that sooner or later, um, they will be gone, um, and certainly we will be gone. And then, and then you you do rely on a humane society to look after those who need it most. Mm. And these are the kind of people who really do need mm. it most and who seem to me more and more are slipping uh, back to the margins again. Mm. Um, so we have we have to look very hard at ourselves, I think, but with, with these sort of people. I'm, I'm also aware we, we, we've been we talking are, for quite a while, but to, sort of to bring it back to where we started off with grandparents. Where did we start? I can't You as a father. Yes. How do you think you would have coped watching your son if you'd been through what your son what happened to your son with regards to Lawrence, if it happened to you as a father, bearing in mind you, you we started off with saying you perhaps weren't as hands-on dad as as you might be. Well, I don't the answer I don't know. But what I think would have happened is that my wife would have been Claire would have been very um, hands-on that this was the hugely important thing in our life, this child. Mm. And I'm hoping that um, I would have joined her in believing that. It would have been harder, I think, and uh, this is why I'm full of admiration for my uh, son and his, and his wife for embracing it, because in the end you, you have to embrace mm. it. I think I'd have taken a while to embrace it. I don't think Claire, Claire would have, um, she wouldn't have had that difficulty. She was, yes, fortunate actually, she had a sister who was um, Down syndrome, mm. or close to Down syndrome. Nothing is, mm. you can't categorize all these mm. things. Um, amazingly, you know, still alive and doing very well in uh, 70 plus now. Mm. Um, but she grew up, therefore, mm. with someone in her family yeah. who needed the embrace yeah. of the whole family. So I think it would have, if it had happened to us, I think she'd have been very comfortable yeah. um, and, and would probably have ensured that I became comfortable mm. too. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is listening to this, and we we do get people listening to this, the, the, the subjects we touch and we don't quite realise have, have gone to somebody, you know, very closely. Someone's listening to this who's got two and a half year old child who's just found out that their son or daughter's autistic. It doesn't sound like it's a thing to fear because they're, as you've described, you know, it's a, you can live a life and... The truth is, I've been shown the light this by, uh, yes, by my family, but also by a remarkable young man called Jonathan Bryan. I don't know if you've come across him. 
But Jonathan Brown is a boy now of 14, I think, uh, who had cerebral palsy. And uh, he lies there. Uh, he has no speech, uh, no means of communication. Um, and what's happened over a period of time is that his mother and his teachers have taught him through blinking his eyes at, a, at letters, not just to speak with his blinking of eyes, but also to write poetry uh, and stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's now a published author. What it tells you is that in every child there's a little, there is a genius screaming to get out. Mm. And Jonathan Brown actually is out there trying to make sure that people in education and, uh, and in the whole, in, in our government, mm. do understand that every child has this. And it's our job, if we can, to enable mm. those who can't speak to the world to speak. So that was a big lesson mm. to me, really. And I watched the parents of this child. And they're the ones who've believed in it. This is all about believing in your child, really. Mm -hmm. If you believe in that child and in the uniqueness of that child, um, then you will do your very best to make that child contented and to fulfill the potential of that child, which is what um, Jonathan's parents have done and it's what Lawrence's parents have done. And that's hopefully what we what we would like to do. What we would, or what we would all no, like to do. That's, what's, that's what makes it the same. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. That's all. And there's no point in pretending that there's anything simple about bringing up children. There's always something that is a concern. There's an anxiety, whether it's where the child's yeah. behaving or a sickness or or whatever. Mm. And, and actually, we just do our, our, our best for them. Mm. That's that seems like a, that, a, I was going to say that seems like a very appropriate note on which to end, actually, because that, that, I think that's that's what Steve and I talk about regularly. It's what we, that's the message yeah. we try to get across. We're not experts. We're not experts by any we means. We want to do our best. Yeah, but the trouble is that people think, because I'm a teacher, and I've been a father, and I've been a grandfather, and I've been a great-grandfather, they think you are an expert. <laughs> and I don't like to disabuse them. And, and this podcast really won't help. <laughs> we'll put a caveat at yeah, the front. Caveat. No yeah. one in this recording yeah. podcast is an expert. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> thank uh, you very much. That's been really fascinating. Thank it's, you. Michael. It's been it's a been, pleasure. Yeah, thank you for coming on and, and talking and being so open and so honest. That's been really, really fascinating. And great good luck with your children. Thank you very much. I think. Well, make, right now I feel like I'm going to need a lot of luck, but there we are. Yeah. Uh, so that's first time dads um, if you've enjoyed what you've heard then please do leave us a review on iTunes uh, and drop us a line at firsttimedads at reachplc.com if you want to have a chat about anything we've spoken about today yes and please do spread the word leave a review on iTunes as Steve mentioned um, and uh, we'll catch you next time thanks for listening